But we're going to start this new series called History, His Story, and Your Story. It's about the plan of God through history and how you fit in God's plan for you. And we're going to be going through some of the major events in the scriptures. You know, we're going to spend about eight weeks on it. So we're going to miss a whole lot of the Bible. You know what I mean? Like we're going to go through some major important things. But I encourage you, if you don't read your Bible on a regular basis, be someone who digs into the word. One of the things that's happening in Christianity today is that there's greater and greater biblical illiteracy. People don't know their Bibles, and that causes people to be swayed by false teaching and all kinds of problems. So read your Bible. It's the holy inspired, inerrant word of God, and it will change your life if you know it and believe it. So God has a plan for history and God has a plan for you. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God has a plan for history and he's got a plan for you. And this series, we're going to try to dig into that. So we start with creation. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter one, and I'm going to try to read it like I got read to when I was in kindergarten. I don't know if you got to sit in front of a great teacher in kindergarten, but I had a great kindergarten teacher who could read a story and we all just were mesmerized by what the teacher would read. And so that's how I'm going to endeavor to read Genesis chapter one, to draw us in and to understand that we serve a God that is the creator of the universe. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered waters. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed, according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good. The creation that God made, it was good on the first day. It was good through the fifth day. And then after the sixth day, it was very good. God describes his creation as very good. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was perfect. But one thing that God also created was free will. And that's going to create some problems that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But before we talk about that, I want you to know that I personally am what they call a young earth creationist. So I believe God created the earth and I believe God created the earth in six days and that it happened maybe 6,000 ish years ago and that sort of a thing. Like I believe in the creation account as it's described. And so that makes me a young earth creationist, which some people may think is similar to people who think the earth is flat, but I have reasons for believing that. My reasons are primarily theological rather than primarily scientific. I went to a conference and I learned a lot of things about the scriptures and about God and about creation. So I'm going to tell you a few things about that. But first, I want to also say I haven't always been a young earth creationist. In fact, when I first became a pastor, I, I didn't know. How am I supposed to know? You know, I, I wasn't there. What, you want me to know about stuff like that? I don't know all of these things. People wanted me to have answers for stuff. I just didn't have them because yeah, I didn't know. I hadn't looked into it. And so you, you don't have to specifically believe that the earth is 6,000 years old to be a follower of Jesus. It's not something that's completely necessary. I'll give you some reasons why I think that in just a second. But you do need to believe that your God is the creator of the universe, that this world is not an accident, 
It's not a production of random chance and it just happens to be here. And you also are just a product of random chance and you just happen to be here too. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a believer in a God that created this reality, that this reality came from somewhere else and was put here and that God also made you This reality, this world is not an accident. It's part of the plan of God. You are not an accident. You're part of the plan of God. It's not random. It's part of God's plan. So the world is not a product of random chance and neither are you. Now, my belief in a young earth creation comes mostly from theology, as I said, but I do believe that science isn't necessarily in conflict with a young earth creationist perspective. You got to be really smart to work all that stuff out. And if I was to suggest someone, it would be Kurt P. Wise. He's a PhD anthropologist from Harvard University. That's a young earth creationist. I went to his conference in 2002. I did not sleep. It was amazing. I just thought it was incredible. And just a couple of the things that he said, the first thing theologically was very important. And that is that the wages of sin is death. And if you have a creator God who creates things very good, did you notice in the, uh, in the description of the creation that everybody's a vegetarian, that people eat fruit and all the animals eat vegetation. There was no meat eating. There's no eating fish. There's no sausages for breakfast. It was fruits and vegetables. And that was it. The reason for that is because the wages of sin is death. You know, it's not just I'm hungry, so I'm going to kill something. It's the wages of sin is death. And so if we have death before sin, it really messes up the whole plan of God. And so theologically, we need to have sin happen before death is going to happen. And that can happen within a young earth creationist perspective. But it's obviously not going to happen from an evolutionary perspective because there has to be lots and lots of death that happens prior to the development of Adam and Eve and that sort of a thing, even if you're going to go along those lines. So death before sin is not acceptable theologically. And then another thing that I found very interesting was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. If you're familiar with that, most Christians are easily able to understand that God could multiply the loaves and the fishes. So you've got five loaves, two fish, 5,000 men, plus women and children. Jesus has the people sit down. They feed them all this stuff. And the, the bread and the fish multiply. And it feeds everyone. Now, could God multiply the, the loaves and the fishes? That seems reasonable, right? I mean, if there's a God, he could do that. Now, what if you grabbed some of that fish that was miraculously created? How old would it be? A minute You know, I mean, some of it is just like, it's probably just formed in the basket and it comes out and it's five seconds old. If you rushed that to the lab and you said to the scientist, was this part of a fish that swam? What would they say? They'd say, yeah, of course. It's a piece of fish. Swam in the ocean. It swam in the sea, wherever it swam, whatever kind of fish it was. Why would they say that? Because they are looking at the evidence and the evidence would indicate that maybe that's a three-year-old fish. Maybe it's a five-year-old fish, but the evidence would not suggest that it's one-minute-old fish. And so when you realize, okay, well, that miracle seems reasonable. What about creation? And there's a whole bunch of things like that. But those were two things that I thought were very significant. Death before sin is not something theologically that's tenable. 
And when we see the feeding of the 5,000, you see something that clearly is going to appear very old compared to how old it actually is. And so that's the reasoning I have. Again, work through your process. I don't expect everybody to be young earth creationists. It's kind of a, a strong place to be, but it's a place that I'm at and something that I think is very helpful in just being able to take the Bible at face value. So I encourage you to seek that out yourself. So I said a little bit earlier that God created all of these things and they were very good. And one of the things that was created that wasn't mentioned was free will. These people that God created, he created them intelligent. He created them to be creative. That's part of being created in the image of God is being able to do things. You can write a song that's never been heard. You can paint a painting that's never been painted. You can build a building in a design that's never been designed. You can create things. Part of how we are created in the image of God is we are made with creative capacity. And in that creative capacity with free will, people tend to do things wrong. So how did we get from it's very good into the mess that we have today? Well, let's look a little bit farther into Genesis chapters two and three. So we're not going to read the whole thing about Adam and Eve, but God creates Adam. He tells them some stuff. God creates Eve, and then some things go a little bit wrong. So let's look at what God told Adam in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So there was work before the fall of man. Before sin, there was work. Work is not a consequence of sin. Not working is a consequence of sin, but we will be busy and creative and doing things when everything is restored. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So he tells Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Now there was a whole bunch of different trees in the garden, all kinds of different fruit. And I don't know what they all were, but I know that there were two trees that were particularly important. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was the tree of life, the tree of life. If you eat of it, you live forever. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you know, good and evil. I wonder which one they ate first. Then verse 17. God is giving the consequence to Adam. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there's one rule. Have you ever felt like following the Lord is complicated and difficult? Like there's all this stuff to figure out. Back then, it was just one thing. Don't eat that. Had all this stuff. Imagine how good the fruit would have been in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat that. Eat all the rest of it. One rule. All right. The fall. Genesis chapter 3. Verses one through seven. This is what we call the fall, the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We are operating under the assumption that this is the devil incarnate. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I should also say when God told that to Adam, Eve hadn't been created yet. So it was Adam's responsibility to explain this to Eve. So the serpent talks to Eve instead of Adam. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now that you must not touch it is added in there. Maybe Adam was like, 
Uh, better tell her to just stay way far away. Don't even touch it. I don't know if Adam added that in there, how that got in there, but don't even touch it or you will die. Verse four, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman. So here we have the serpent bringing in a contradiction. Yeah. Okay. God said that, but that's not the way it's really going to be. And so now Eve is faced with a choice. Do I trust what Adam told me God said, or do I trust the serpent? Verse five, for God knows this is the serpent still speaking for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, sometimes when people are taught things in Sunday school, they're not taught a very accurate account. I've been shown flannel graph pictures of Eve and the serpent and Adam's not there. But guess what? Adam's there. And he's watching this interaction between Eve and the serpent. And he's the one who heard from God. And he's got his hands in his pockets. And he's just watching it. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because Eve is deceived by the serpent and Adam is passive. And they realize they're naked and shame comes into the world. This is the moment that shame is born. Before that, there was no shame. No one felt bad about their physical appearance. Nobody felt like they weren't good enough. Nobody felt like they didn't fit in. There was no such thing as shame on the planet. But that moment, shame came in. Shame was born and death begins to loom in the background. So this is the fall. We see that Adam and Eve disobey the one rule. And what follows the fall is the separation because Adam and Eve had a special relationship with God. There was a moment in time where God was creating different animals and would show Adam and Adam would name them. And I can imagine that in my mind where God creates a lion and whistles and the lion walks out and he's like, Hey Adam, what do you think of that? And like, dude, you know, like he's just like so stoked. And God's like, what do you want to call it? That's a lion. Like, it is a lion. Good for you. And it goes off. And just this incredible parade that God, the creator, and Adam get to share, where Adam gets to name the, the things that God is creating. What a beautiful connection they must have had. And now we have a separation between the people, Adam and Eve, and God. Let's read that, verses 8 through 11. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. God comes to see Adam and Eve. What do Adam and Eve do? They run away. So there's a separation between God and man because of sin. Who initiates this separation? It's very interesting. It's man that hides. It's not God that refused to come back and talk to him. It's the the man and the woman who hid. They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He calls out. He makes sure to initiate contact. 
Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Who told you? Let me ask you this question. Who told you to be ashamed? Who told you to look down on yourself? It wasn't God. It wasn't Jesus. That's not the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. That's from somewhere else. Our God is good. Our God loves you. And he sees you as beautiful and wonderful and incredible. So we see the separation from God. Shame came into the world. And so Adam and Eve ran from God. God came to them, but they ran. They were ashamed, so they ran from God. This is still rampant in the world today. And please, I beg you, in your shame, when you mess up horribly, when you look at yourself in the mirror and you're disgusted, don't run from God, run to God. In your shame, run to God. This is a mistake that happened on the first day there was shame. And it's a mistake that continues to happen to this day. When people fail God, when people fail themselves or other people, they run away from God. Don't run away from God, run to God. Reconnect with God. God wants to connect with you. The separation from God is never on God's side. It's always on our side. God isn't mad at us and turning his back on us. We walk away from God. When we run home, he opens his arms and hugs us, gives us the robe and the ring and restores us. The separation from God is on our side. So go to God in your shame. We started with creation. Then we have the fall. Then we have separation from God. Now we get blame shifting. Do you know blame shifting was there on the first, that first day of sin and shame? There's blame shifting. So let's go to the next verse, Genesis 3, verse 12, 12 and 13. God asks Adam, did you eat of the tree I told you not to? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The woman you, you put here, look, like it was her. And what did you put her here in the first place for? Like it wasn't, I got nothing to do with this. You know, he's like, she, she and you. And, and so Adam is blaming Eve and God for not following the one rule. Isn't that just like a good man? You know I mean? Like, <laughs> is this still happening today? People in their shame run away from God, and people, when they have to confront what they've done wrong, blame shift. It still happens today. And then Eve sort of blame shifts, but she's more just telling the truth. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. That's pretty much straightforward truth. She got fooled by the serpent, and she ate. In the New Testament, it says that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Adam knew what was going on. He understood. He just stood there with his hands in his pockets. And I honestly think he thought to himself, well, we'll let her eat first and see what happens. <laughs> and she takes a bite and he's okay. All right, sweet. We'll see if she dies. I don't know. God can make new stuff. And <laughs> so here we have blame shifting. Adam knew the rule. He blamed Eve and he blamed God. What should Adam have done in that situation? What Adam should have done is to have led his wife away from the serpent, away from the tree into safety. 
He needed to lead. He needed to take control of the situation and say, you know what? This conversation is over. We're going to go over here. We're going to have some nice fruit from this tree. He needed to intervene and lead. But instead, he was passive with his hands in his pockets, and he just watched it all happen while he knew what was going on, and he let Eve be deceived. That is much worse than being deceived. He understood Adam should have led her away to safety, but he didn't. Men, please lead. You are in a special position called by God to take responsibility and to protect your family, to lead them away from the deception that the enemy brings, the lies, all of those things. You are responsible to lead them away from that and to protect them. Don't stand there with your hands in your pockets and let it fall apart. Your job is to lead. So men, please don't blame shift. Don't watch it happen. Lead. And then after the blame shifting, we have God's judgment. God does not fall for any of the blame shifting, but he brings judgment on the serpent. He brings judgment on Eve and he brings judgment on Adam. So next verse, Genesis 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then the judgment for Eve, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So she gets two things. She gets childbearing is going to be hard for you now. It's going to be painful. It's going to be rough. You're going to bring life into the world, but it's going to hurt. That was part of the judgment. And the other part of the judgment is that the, the husband becomes the spiritual head of the home. I looked up the Hebrew words for rule over here. And then earlier in chapter one, we saw that the people ruled over like the fishes and the animals and that sort of a thing. The one where it's talking about the fishes and the animals is a, is a stronger type of ruling. It could even be subjugating, you know, or dominating. Whereas this one is more like what would be described as someone who's a governor or a, a public official, someone who's going to rule, but they have a responsibility to rule well. So it isn't that the husband gets to be the jerk and, well, that's what God says and nobody can do anything about it. It's that the husband has a a role and a responsibility to take authority, not to stand there with his hands in his pockets and let it all fall apart, but he is going to be the one that's going to be responsible and have that authority over him. So that's the, the second part of the judgment against Eve. Now, Eve gets one verse of judgment. Adam gets three. Genesis verse 17 to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So the first piece we see here is the earth is cursed. It used to be that trees would grow and that they kept the garden, but it wasn't painful toil. It would have been where, you know, the weeds don't grow. You plant a tree. I don't know, three weeks later, you're picking fruit. I don't know how it went, but it just was easy. The ability to just creatively 
Tend the garden was there without the painful toil. But instead, now we still live on a cursed earth. And says, through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. So work went from a pleasure to a hardship. It got hard. Making a living was going to be difficult. Verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So you're going to work hard. You're going to get thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the death sentence. He's saying, you're going to work really hard, and you're going to die. Before that, it was up in the air. It was Adam and Eve could live forever. The tree of life was in the garden. They must have not eaten of that tree. Because later we see there's an angel with a flaming sword that guards the tree so that they don't eat it so that they stay mortal, so that they, they will die. So the sentence of death is put on them. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You had the chance to eat from that tree. You ate from the wrong one. Now you're going to die. Some people think that because like Eve didn't die immediately, Adam didn't die immediately, that when God said that you will surely die, that somehow, you know, we got to create weird theologies to make it true. No, the sentence of death came. They were sentenced to death and now they're waiting because God has a plan. He can't have Adam and Eve die and not have kids and not create the human race and not have history happen. But the sentence of death came on. So the judgment for Adam is that the earth is cursed and that the death sentence is proclaimed. So we've covered a lot today. There's a creation. God is our creator God. He makes the heavens and the earth. It was formless and void. It was empty. And God created the universe, the, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of the animals, everything about the earth. God has created all of these things. People were described as very good in God's creation. Every day was good until people were there, and then it was very good. People, male and female, created in the image of God. There was one rule. Adam and Eve did not follow that rule, so that was the fall of man. Then we have a separation between God and Adam and Eve as they ran and hid. And then there's blame shifting, and then God's judgment. It started off... Really good, but it got all messed up. God's plan for history is to restore, to create a new heavens and a new earth where there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no death. It will be restored to perfection. That's God's plan. No curse. And isn't that a lot how our lives go? We start off innocent and beautiful, and then the years go by and it all gets messed up. Just like God has a plan to restore the earth to create a new heavens and a new earth that's not cursed, that's beautiful and wonderful. God has a plan to restore you forever as well. You can eat of the tree of life and be free from Adam's curse. Adam's curse was you're made out of dust. You're going to be dust again. The tree of life is the tree that allows us to live forever. We're going to have a section of scripture here that we're close on Revelation 22. So we're going from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. Revelation 22, this is Jesus speaking, says this, Look, I am coming soon. 
My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Let's go back to verse 14. Verse 14 says something really incredible. Blessed are those who wash their robes. We wash our robes by asking Jesus for forgiveness of sins. It's symbolic of sin leaving a stain on our clothing and The way we get that stain out, that disqualifying stain, is by washing our robes. And we wash through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He died on the cross that our sins may be forgiven, that our stains may be gone, and that we may be acceptable to God without any stain or wrinkle and be able to have that relationship restored to God. And then it says to those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city, may have the right to the tree of life, the tree that Adam and Eve left to the side as they went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As so many people leave the things of God off to the side to go find out all the other things that this world has, the knowledge of good and evil, and they explore and they are wounded, and they are hurt, and they need a Savior. But your robes can be washed, can receive forgiveness, and we can have access to the tree of life and have everlasting life. God's plan for creation, he created it very good. It got all messed up. But his plan is to restore creation for forever. We start beautiful, wonderful, innocent babies, grow into beautiful, innocent kids, who do dumb stuff and our life gets complicated and messy and hurt. And God's plan is to restore us for forever that we can have everlasting life. So we're going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I need my robes washed. I need to be forgiven and set free from the curse of Adam to be taken back to dust, that death sentence, to be released from that, to receive of the tree of life and have everlasting life. So let's go before the Lord and seek him on this. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Lord, you are so good. We give you praise. We thank you for your plan for creation. You know everything. You knew to make a plan for restoration. You did that for the earth for your physical creation. And you did that for us, the ones you created in your image, who didn't know how to handle being created in your image. And so we sin and we fail and we fall and we create harm and damage. And instead of destroying us, you let yourself pay the price, Lord Jesus on the cross, because the wages of sin is death. And you paid that price that we could be free that we could be free from Adam's curse and that we could eat of the tree of life 
and live forever. And Lord, for each of us who are endeavoring to walk with you, help us to know that shame does not belong to us, that the curse does not belong to us because you are our redeemer. So Lord, help us to grab hold of that truth. You are our creator. You've got a good plan for us. You've got a good plan for history. So Lord, help us to walk in your good plan. And Lord, help us to know fully, completely, powerfully how much you love us so that we're filled up with your love. All insecurities, all fears are gone. And we can walk in your love and share your love with all the people in this world who so desperately need it. So Lord, bless us in this way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.